The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone on this cold night. I'm told that we have a lunar eclipse that we should see, or you guys will see when you leave tonight. So I've begun a series of talks on practicing in daily life after spending most of January looking at uh, what the sitting practice, the sitting meditation practice is all about. So that, uh, I mean, the idea, of course, is that we become independent. And then, you know, every once in a while we might get confused and then we want to check back with a particular book that's been instructive for us or a particular teacher. But the idea, both for our formal sitting practice and then our how to live as a human being in our harmonious, loving, and wise way, that practice, too, we ideally would be independent so that we have enough of the, a sense of the principles involved with being skillful, with being wise and loving, that we can use our life as practice. I mean, that's the whole idea of a spiritual path, is that we use everything as practice. It just maximizes the effect of the practice of the path if we're using our whole life, as opposed to just 30 minutes or once a week when we come to common ground, 30 minutes when we sit in the morning or in the evening. And so um, one way that I've been talking about practice, whether it's sitting, formal sitting practice or living our life practice, just in terms of four components that might, might be useful for you to just keep in mind. Because then what that helps us do is understand, oh, so I'm using my life to do each of these four things in order to have deeper insight, deeper understanding about how best to live, how best to relate to my life as it actually is. So there's the part about uh, clarifying our deepest intention from which we get motivated, we get energy. So this is really reflecting on our aspiration or our deepest intention in life. And this should be an ongoing daily life practice, both a formal thing we can do for the first few minutes when we're about to do a sitting meditation or go on a retreat, just to reflect, like, why am I doing this? What is this about? What do I really want with this life? And how does this fit with my intention, my deepest intention? And then, especially from a Buddhist point of view, the real catalyst for change, for learning, or what we call insight, is this heart, this mind, being awake to the present moment. So just when we're distracted, when we're not aware of how it is, we're not going to learn anything. And one way to think about this, whether we're formally sitting or living our daily life, if, we're, if the heart, mind, isn't present, then we're like a robot. And as a robot, we're just acting out our patterns, depending on what's gotten triggered, and there's no sense, there's no awareness of the patterns. Because if there were awareness of the patterns, we'd be present. We'd be aware of how it is, which is this habit energy is coming up, and I'm aware of it, and it's like this. 
But if we're just the habit energy, then there's no awareness of it. And then there's no learning. The only thing that happens when we're just the habit energy acting itself out is that habit energy gets reinforced. The groove, the tendency gets a little deeper for it to be repeated. So, uh, the, again, the four aspects of practice, being aware, being um, committed to developing our intention, to, to knowing more quickly what is our deepest aspiration and forgetting it less often and noticing the energy that we get when we remember our real aspiration. And one of the things you'll notice is you have a lot of, probably if you're like me, you have a lot of false aspirations, things you think you should be aspiring to. And you'll know that those aren't real because they don't come with any energy. You know, those are the shoulds in our life. You know, where we think we should be this because that's what we've been programmed to think. But it, it's not coming from a deep place where we, where it's connected with our, you know, like deeply wanting to care for ourselves, take care of ourselves, take care of those around us. That generally comes with a lot more energy. So there's the intention. Then there's a deepening appreciation, recognition that real learning or insight happens when this mind and heart is present. Meaning, the, we're relating as the space which understands what's happening in the present moment, what's happening in the space. There's a knowing, oh, this is what's happening. This is what's arising internally in terms of emotion and mental content, physical sensation externally in terms of visual experience and auditory experience. Oh, this is what's happening. So just to recognize and to appreciate in deeper and deeper ways that this is the place where things change, where our life changes. And when we're not in the present moment, we're just a habit acting itself out. And when we are in the present moment, there's an awareness of a habit. There's an awareness of a lot of habits, habit energies, right? But that allows for some change. When we're aware of, I've got this impulse to do something, that doesn't mean we have to do it. We could just be aware of it without acting it out. But if we're not aware, if we're not mindful in the present moment, we're just going to act out the strongest impulse. That's just what happens. The third part of daily life practice or formal sitting practice is having a set of tools to make that present moment aware, awareness more continuous. Right? So mostly, I mean, you can read and you can listen to what people say about these tools. But these tools become tools when we've actually used them and see that they work. Like when there's a strong habit energy of aversion, what can I do to stay awake to the fact, oh, there's aversion in the mind and it's like this. Instead of being just swept away, identified with the aversion, really believing it. Believing like there is this guy called Mark who deserves to be angry and upset and to strike back or to withdraw because of the anger. But to have, to maintain that sense of, oh, there's just anger and it's like this. This is anger and it's like this. 
what skills, what tools do we have that allows us not to forget this is just something being known in the present moment, this strong emotion is just something being known in the present moment. This is essential, like through the process of sitting practice and daily life practice, to really develop confidence in a set of tools where we can practice not getting hooked by all the things that tend to hook us into distraction, into a kind of spiritual blindness where we're basically, again, just habits acting themselves out instead of awareness, knowing that the habit is like this, that the impulse is like this. So that's the third part of practice. It's related, of course, to the second part, which is understanding, appreciating the power of the present moment to learn for insight. And then it's just like, well, how do you, how does this mind stay present? It's one thing to appreciate that there is this possibility of being present, being in the moment, but then how do we maintain that with some continuity? And how do we return? And then the, the fourth way of practicing really can only come about in order to practice this fourth way, we already need some insight. Probably all of us have some authentic spiritual insight. But how developed it is, how available it is, is probably really different among us, just depending on our particular circumstances, how much uh, we practiced, how much we practiced in maybe a previous lifetime, who knows. But this is really knowing the direct way to practice. So we don't have to worry about cultivating our intention, remembering the present moment, having a set of skills that allows us to stay in the present moment. The direct way is basically understanding in the moment the experience of suffering and how it arises and how to let go of what the causes that generate that suffering. So it's just, uh, and like I said, most of us have some insight about this. The deeper the insight is, the more directly we can go to the crux of the problem which is this heart is bound up and it doesn't need to be that way. So it's remembering, like the Buddha said when talking to Soma, uh, Sona, I think his name was, and uh, he was maybe, you remember this story, it's a pretty well-known story in the, the Buddha's discourses. He was a monk, but before he had become a monk, he was a famous lute player or some kind of stringed instrument. and. Uh, he was really uh, working hard, you know, trying to follow the instructions. He was doing walking practice so intently that, and so often, so rigorously that he developed huge blisters all over his feet and just kept doing it, you know. And of course, by then, the pain was so intense that his mind couldn't get composed, you know. So he was trying hard. He had the effort down, but he didn't have the ease down. <laughs> so the Buddha kind of, I think in this particular scenario, the Buddha psychically understood that Sona was having some problems and went to him and uh, said, uh, how you doing? <laughs> and, oh, I know, what the reason the Buddha picked up that he needed to go see Sona is that uh, he started doubting that he should have become a monk. Like, what am I doing this for? 
you know, the harder I work, the harder, the further I seem away from any kind of benefit from this practice. I might as well go enjoy and enjoy the superficial benefits of being a, a householder. You know, where I get to eat when I want to eat, and I, I get to have an intimate partner, and I, you know, I get to have kids if I want kids, and. And, you know, I can indulge in sense pleasures. At least I can indulge in sense pleasures. Here as a monk, I don't get too many sense pleasures, and I get blistered feet. <laughs> so what's the point? So the Buddha somehow picked up that his mind was going in this direction and thought he'd give him some instruction. So he showed up with Sona, and he reminded Sona about what he did before he had become a monk. He said, well, when you had your lute, you know, if, you, if the strings were too loose, did it sound any... Did it sound good? And of course, he said, no. He said, if the strings were too tight, did it sound good? No. Just so, as it often is translated, that, that phrase the Buddha said when he was given a simile, just so. That's how we have to practice, that balance be- between being too tight and too loose. And uh, so we can do this direct path, this path of letting go, um, when we've done the first three, you know, when we remember this intention, which is remembering the taste of freedom. But this is really what it's about. It's about release. So this is what we remember when we remember our deepest aspiration. We, Basically what we're discovering, kind of through the cloudiness of all of our desires and all the things we've been programmed to want in life and to be afraid of in life, what we realize is what we really want is we want this heart to be at ease. But what we get, what happens is we get stuck on what we think will make our heart at ease. Like a gross example is like if I only had enough money, then my heart would be relaxed. And then we forget that second part about my heart being relaxed. And we just think, I just need money. And we're not even sure why we need money. Or I just need a, a lover. Or I just need you know, a different climate, to live in a different climate where it doesn't get so cold for so long. Or I need a different personality or a different body. But what what we really want is to be at ease. And that's like spiritual goal to remember that. So the question is, how can we remember that all day long? How can we remember what the Buddha said to Sona after this instruction about, you know, bringing his lute into balance, you know, not too tight, not too loose. And then the Buddha said this to to Sona. He said uh, something like, uh, this practice, right? Remember, he was pretty discouraged. He was thinking of quitting being a monk. He says, this practice should have only one taste, the taste of freedom. So the, the flavor you get this, and we should just hear this instruction for ourselves. So when you're sitting and when you're living your daily life, not distracted, not just sort of lost in whatever it is that you're doing, but, but there's a sense that I may be catching the bus or I may be doing the dishes, but I'm really trying to live out my deepest aspiration. So that's what I mean by daily life practice, where you have some awareness that what I really care about is this, what the Buddha says, this taste of freedom. So he said it's the, it's the only taste of real practice, this taste of freedom. 
and it's the highest truth, the sweetest taste, the greatest joy. And this is important to remember because, especially in the Buddhist practice, there's a real emphasis on dukkha or, or suffering. But there's nothing, it's not that this is a grim practice, it's just the contrary. It's just that one of the ways to, to, one of the best ways, the most efficient ways to realize this freedom, this sweetest taste, this greatest joy, is to look at what gets us upset, what agitates the mind. So, when we are living our daily life, we want to keep this this uh, aspiration alive. That I would really, I really aspire to this heart being released. Like in one sutta, one discourse, the Buddha, and it's a very famous, another very famous talk he gave called the Heartwood Talk or Heartwood Discourse. And in that, he's describing how we uh, seek things, thinking that we're seeking what we really want, only discover it isn't what I really want. This isn't the end. I still... And the heartwood is the simile for what we really want. And then he defines it in this really beautiful way. And one of the phrases, he uses, shakeable release of the heart. That's what we really want. That's the heartwood of a spiritual life, the unshakable release. So if we can remember that, It provides a lot of motivation to come back to the present moment, which we're discovering is the place where the the understanding, our understanding deepens. Being present with our emotions, with our mind, with the body, with the conditions around us, that's, if we're not there, we're not learning. We're not actually transforming our conditioning. So we have to be in the present moment, and then we have to develop skill. And that development of skill just comes from appreciating the value of being in the present moment. You know how it is. It's like, you know, if we really like, uh, you know, if we really like our friend gets a really nice car and he lets us or she lets us drive it, and here we go, wow, this is great, you know, compared to my junker, this is great. Well, all of a sudden we're quite motivated now to earn the money to get a car like that. And it's a little bit like uh, being in the present moment and seeing the value, like how how edifying it is to be in the present moment and see all of our habit energy. It's not necessarily pretty, and it's not necessarily pleasant, but it's really edifying. And uh, we get motivated to sort of see how do we get lost? How is it that the mind gets distracted? And how is it that the mind can return? And we just start developing street smarts in terms of how to maintain some continuity of being present, being mindful in life. What I want to spend a little bit more time digging into tonight is uh, is this whole idea of this particular flavor of freedom and how we can use that in our daily life. Like, how do we remember this possibility of freedom, this taste of the unshakable release of the heart. Meaning a heart that's really unburdened with any fear, no matter how subtle. Unburdened with any discontent. Unburdened with any confusion. 
doesn't mean that we know everything, right? To be free doesn't mean we have to have uh, omniscience, where we know all. Like sometimes, you know, when uh, people describe the Buddha, they describe the Buddha as having this, you know, perfect wisdom. But a lot of people had the same enlightenment, the same freedom of the Buddha, a lot of his students, thousands. I mean, if you read the discourses, the recorded discourses, I mean, there were thousands of men and women who had full enlightenment. But they didn't necessarily know as much as the Buddha. You don't need to be smart to be free. You don't need to have psychic powers to be free. The freedom is not about that kind of, um, that sort of uh, power. Although I'm not saying it's bad to have that power, but it probably would be bad if we weren't free of our kind of greed, anger, and delusion, because we'd use that power for our greed, anger, and delusion <laughs> instead of for a more noble cause like you know, supporting others. So the, the ease, the release, this unshakable release is really attainable by ordinary people like us. And even right now, it's possible for us to have a very clear sense of what this ease is. And then it's just a matter of remembering it, like finding ways to remember it. And one of the easier ways to get a sense of what I'm talking about is we all know what it's like to be really fearful. I mean, think about a time recently when you had a lot of fear. Maybe you were in a meeting and you were afraid that the people at the meeting were going to discover something you did that was wrong. You know, or maybe, you know, you did something that was humiliating. You were talking and you were chewing a carrot and all of a sudden you shot it out your nose. You know, <laughs> that happens sometimes. And there you are in a dignified setting. A complete fool. <laughs> Well, all the different ways that we can get really tight, the heart can get really tight, you know, where we, uh, we're trying to be seen as being cool, and, uh, but we end up acting out some really strong emotion, you know, showing some stinginess or greediness or showing some anger and to people we'd rather, you know, not see that stuff. Any number of ways... So when we notice that heart being really bound up, then we, we can have a pretty clear sense of the possibility of not being bound up. Like how wonderful it would be for this heart to not be bound up, to not be weighed down, to not be wanting to sort of back away from whatever is going on in our life, or wanting so much for something to happen in our life. So it's not that. So it's really okay to think about this freedom in the negative, like what it's not. It's not about being bound up. It's not about leaning forward in life. It's not about being afraid, leaning back. It's not about wanting to distract ourselves, you know being overly dependent on certain sense experiences to get some relief from the boredom of our life or from the inadequacy as we see it of our life.
And it's really important to reflect on this because otherwise what happens, life kind of wears us down and we, we end up with this philosophy, this view, that's sort of the default view in I think all cultures, but certainly our culture, which is that it's appropriate to be a miserable human being. You know, and we're kind of all codependent where we sort of expect each other to be a little bit overwhelmed by life and just looking for a little relief from what is basically difficult, you know, what is difficult, our lives. You know, so we're quite, we, we sort of um, support each other in, in things that we know better. We know that this isn't any answer to life, but, you know, these little things we just sort of make a big deal out of for ourselves and for others. So we can even ask ourselves, you know, do we believe that this unshakable release of the heart is a possibility to aspire to? Is real happiness even a possibility in our minds? So we want to, if, if it isn't, we want to at least have an open mind. We don't want to fake it, you know, and be idealistic. Oh, I hope so. I hope it's true. But we want to at least challenge our idea that it's not possible. Because otherwise we, we sort of end up just living out this, oh, I'm just trying to get to Friday, or I'm just trying to get to retirement or, you know, whatever, whatever might be next. Do you notice sometimes how we get suspicious of people who seem to be expressing some natural ease and release, you know, for some moment in their life, for some moments in their life? It's like it challenges us, like... Who the hell do you think you are being happy? <laughs> given, you know, and then we have this very strong idea, like given this, given this world, given my situation, given the world situation, how can you be happy? How can you be at ease? Like that's not, it's not appropriate. And what's really important then is to see the arrogance that goes with that view. Now, I'm not saying that we should, uh, like I said before, we're not trying to imitate or fake the other view, but we want to undermine the arrogance or the, the deep commitment we have to heaviness. And this is that, uh, this really comes with the aspiration, working with the aspiration. So it's much better to go through our lives you know, and specifically, because we're talking about daily life practice, it's much better to go through the day not repeating in some fashion in our mind that I'm a suffering being. But it'd be much better to say, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what this is, this life is. I have no idea what this moment is. So let me see. Because that... That's a very skillful attitude because it's conducive to looking more deeply. But if we have the idea, you know, life is a 
B-I-T-C-H, well then, we, that's all we see. It's like we have that view, so then we see what confirms that view. And we tend not to notice what doesn't fit that view. There's a great poem, I, I don't think I can remember it exactly, a short poem by Havis, who's a Persian poet, sort of of the same era of Rumi, who's well known, I think a little bit before Rumi's time in the 12th or 13th century. And uh, you know, probably in Islam, there is this uh, mystical tradition, Sufism, and uh, some really amazing poetry came out of that. And this one poem by Havis is uh, something about somebody playing chess with God. And uh, God makes such a great move. Oh, I know how it begins. So uh, the poet is sort of telling the difference between an ordinary person and a saint. And an uh, uh, ordinary person thinks they have a lot of good moves left. But a saint sees God's move as being so amazing that he or she, you know, completely lets go. And the, the phrase that he uses in this poem is tripping over joy. That tripping over joy by how amazing God's move was. So God's move, is, of course, is just the present moment. This is, in the poem, this is God's move. So when we're present, with God's move, with how it is, it's so unfathomable. It doesn't, when we're really present, so we're not, that doesn't mean we're, it means we're not looking through our existing views, interpreting the present moment through our existing views, but we've stripped away those views and it's just the heart knowing how it is. That that's so amazing that the result is this tripping over joy. It is. It, it very much is like a free fall. That's what it feels like. There's no ground. The mind can't define it. The thinking mind, the conceptualizing mind, can't define it. And this is the freedom that we we can discover in moments, or at least have the the flavor, the scent of this kind of freedom in moments. And then with more continuity, then in more moments, in a deeper way, through the cultivation of awareness. So let's take the, the next 10 minutes. I will save about 15 minutes to discuss together. But let's take the next 10 minutes, and uh, I'll share a few thoughts. And we can, you can think about, well, how, given your experience in your life, how can you remember this freedom, this possibility of freedom, this, this uh, tripping over joy? How can you remember it as a possibility so that when you're being in the world and you're being in your life, you're not coloring your life with this, ah, life's a B-I-T-C-H, you know, life's heavy. It's... How can we uh, have an open mind, an open heart to the possibility of this release, of this freedom?
And when we think this way, and, and you can continue to reflect, it makes it more obvious why in different religious spiritual traditions there are rituals, there are prayers. There are, in you know, like in uh, the Zen tradition, especially the Zen Buddhist tradition, there are what are called gathas. You know, if you've read any of Thich Nhat Hanh's writings or other teachers in this in the Zen tradition, they often uh, will give their students particular phrases to repeat. So Thich Nhat Hanh is a master at this. He has probably thousands. I think that's not an exaggeration of these gattas. One for brushing your teeth, one for opening doors, one before you eat, one after you eat, one when you wake up, when you go to bed. And basically, it's a, you know, it's a mindfulness activity because you have to remember to say it. And then when you say it, it's an invitation to being fully present. Or it's an invitation to let go of all of our preconceived ideas and concepts about who I am, what's happening now, and to just trip over joy for a few seconds in the experience of the present moment. Now, of course, you can use gattas as a real burden. You can turn them into pure suffering. Like The last thing I want to say is, you know, happiness is available. <laughs> you know... Brushing my teeth, I purify the heart of all ignorance. You know, so that's that. That's a gatha might be like that, but we can turn that into something that's just drudgery. So each of us has to find our own particular medicine that, for us, is an invitation to this unshakable, full release of the heart, or just a remembering that well, this is a possibility. It's a, possible, it's a possibility for this heart to relax, to be at ease. And it might be a particular phrase you heard from the Buddha or something your friend, uh, friend said or your kindergarten teacher told you. You know, it's like these little, what is meaningful to us is sort of what's meaningful to us. It doesn't mean it will be meaningful to anybody else. It may even be a particular image. Like, uh, I remember my wife, Wynne, had this photograph that I agree was pretty remarkable. It's just a young boy from maybe Indonesia. I'm not sure where the photo was taken. But he was playing some kind of a dice game, you know, where you throw something. And uh, it just shows him. But somehow the photographer just captured this little boy. You know, he was just like so there in the experience. And partly just the... Even though it's a still fo photograph, it just captured the, you know, that nimbleness of youth. The body just, the body and the mind not being two different things, but just being one thing. And uh, so, just like remembering an image like that, can remind us of some possibility of being holy in the moment. But part of being able to practice in daily life is to realize that all of the saints, all of wise, loving people in the past, they had to find ways to be reminded. So that's what we have to do. We have to find ways to remind ourselves. Basically, we're reminding ourselves of our deepest understanding. We're, we're somehow finding a way to bring our deepest wisdom 
bring it alive in that and every ordin as many ordinary moments during the day as we can. And I remember somebody once asked Buddha Dasa, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who's this great Thai meditation master who trained a lot of the Western teachers. Um, he's dead now, died about 20 years ago. Somebody once asked him, if you could only take one thing to a desert, uh, deserted island, what would you bring? And he said, I'd bring a medallion. And on the medallion it would say, this is how it is. <laughs> so just like that, for somebody might be their wisdom teaching that just sort of opens their mind to this possibility of being completely in alignment with the way things are, not needing things to be different or not rationalizing, sort of uh, creating some uh, barrier between how it is and this heart, this mind. So you might, you know, in our discussion now, you might think about, you might share ways that, that where in your life have you been naturally reminded? It may be like when you walk outside of your apartment or your house that there's a particular tree or a particular view of the sky that every once in a while, you know, maybe a couple times a week, it just sort of, uh, you see it and it has an effect on your mind. Or there may be, there's a particular character at work or in your life that you run into periodically and then that person for you sort of, uh, represents the possibility of not being so tight in life, not, so, not being so fearful, or not being so greedy in life. So this would be nice to share with each other. It may be a particular teaching that you've somehow memorized or remember that you could share with the group that for you works or worked for you for a while. Maybe it doesn't work anymore, but maybe it'll work for somebody else. In that. Just something that will help us remember the possibility of freedom. So I'll leave it here so that uh, there's time to either ask questions or to share some thoughts from your own practice with the group. What comes to mind? Tony. Um, every year, Target has an international market. And last year, they had this people that lose. It cost about two bucks. So I have uh, about... I had one in my office and one in my bedroom that gave one away. So when I walked in, and then I, have, I bought other ones too. So when I walked in my house, I have like little gulas everywhere with little flowers. And as a reminder of, of, of this is the way it is. And also a friend of mine gave me a, she went to a lecture on how to get, how, how to get along with difficult people. It's a wonderful lecture. Um, <laughs> and what happened was this man's wallet had been stolen. And he was very angry and upset about that. And so how the story goes is that and somehow he came to grips with that by understanding that the, this man's thief probably needed the money more than he did. So that's on my refrigerator. So just little things throughout the house. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Other examples people have or comments, questions? I work at, um, What's your name? Clint. Clint. I work at General Mills, and we actually miraculously had a mindfulness program. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked. But there's a woman who was taking the training, and she uh-huh. 
What's her name? Uh, Janice Marjorano. Uh-huh. I know of her, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's actually something that's kind of really starting to take a hold. And really, a friend of mine teaches at an insurance company in the Southeast. She's a gentleman. There's so many things she teaches in my book. Yeah. There's a huge waiting list. And because it's showing that it's increasing improving their culture. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things she suggested is that just certain hallways. So this turning places into sacred spaces, I mean, if you may not like the word sacred, but you can just substitute your own word, this is something that really is, is useful. And it can be any place, that because uh, the place will remind you of this intention. Mm-hmm. And what's your name? Shane. Exactly what most of us did is we laugh. It's so healthy to laugh when we catch yourself being a maniac in the world, or catch yourself rationalizing being tight. You know, like this is the appropriate way to be tight, as if it would ever make sense to be tight. Uh, it's just to laugh because laugh. That laughter is is a quality of love. It's like it's a forgiveness. You know, we're forgiving ourselves. We're understanding. Oh, this is how it is. Thanks, Shane. Other thoughts? Todd. I spent a lot of time working in uh, really rough neighborhoods uh, in Tennessee, Oakland, and San Francisco. And, uh, I just got in my way, particularly in those times, to find, to remind myself of the sacredness of it. You know, when you're looking at kind of horrifying things or the scary realities or anything. You know, because in the end, there can't be any delineation between what's sacred and what's not. So I guess when I see things, they're a little. Downtrodden stuff, I remind myself of the same piece of just what's there and still the miracle of it. Yeah. Thanks. Other thoughts people have? Yes. Um, I, say your name again, please. Oh, Shannon. Shannon. Yeah. Um, so, what's going to happen though? Um, I'm pretty American, but um, my dog. <laughs> Every day. I mean, she's so 
Yeah, that's Shantideva, a Buddhist monk from, I think, around the 9th century in India. And uh, that's like the Dalai Lama's favorite Buddhist teaching from Shantideva. It's something like the guidelines for Bodhisattva that he wrote. That's the title of the, the poem or the verses that he wrote. Other comments? Mona. like that, which really is pointing toward a, sort of the deeper uh, aspect of the teaching, it can really affect our mind. If we remember this possibility of a mind without good and bad in it. Because, you know, normally when we're in a situation or life, we immediately turn the situation, we judge it or interpret the situation in terms of good and bad. So just remembering the possibility. And the, the thing about these t deep teachings, they, they come with a real punch because even though it's just words, these words represent something that's inherently true. So the living with the idea of good and bad is relatively true, but there's something that sort of is, uh, that relative truth actually takes work to be maintained. So when we're reminded of something that's more open than that, it actually comes with a punch. It, it can have an effect on the mind, and that's a, uh, that's a potent one. There, there are many, though, just from the Buddhist tradition and other traditions that can really open the mind directly. Thanks, Mike. Mm -hmm. Jerry. I'm Jerry. Um, I just don't feel like there's really that much suffering. I mean, to me, it's just, you know, 
almost sounds like sometimes like you know this life is a veil of tears and everything is always bad. But when I look at my life, it doesn't seem like I'm really suffering all the time. So. I mean, I'm just wondering what you're playing. Yeah. Well, I guess my... I don't know what that point is. Yeah. Other than, you know, it just sounds like... It just sounds like, um... I should be noticing more suffering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can sit longer. <laughs> At some point, suffering will arise, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or sit in certain places, you know, as Todd was suggesting, put yourself in places because it, it is true that some people have a kind of uh, good-natured personality, you know, and uh, that, uh, that there isn't a lot of obvious unfinished business in the heart. So, so what we generally, the, the general instruction for somebody like that is to develop more sensitivity. So both sensitivity out into the world, it's like we're developing tendrils in all directions, where we're actually feeling everybody's pain, which is actually possible. And also more sensitivity about our own heart. So I'm not denying that experience. I think we all, at least in moments, travel in that place. You know, with life feels pretty good, or reasonably good. But the thing is, it's insecure until we're completely sensitive. And then when we're completely sensitive and we have that experience, fully sensitive and have that experience, then our work is done. But until we're completely intimate with all things in all directions, uh, and also feeling the heart is completely released. We just keep practicing. And so when we're not feeling the heart bound up, it's like we, uh, we appreciate that, but in the context of appreciating the release of the heart, we cultivate greater sensitivity. And one of the things you can, be, you can use to cultivate your greater sensitivity is become more and more sensitive of how released your heart feels. So you might, I mean, as long as it's a pleasant experience, you might as well use it for your object of meditation. Meditate on the ease, release the joy, the groundedness, or whatever, whatever the quality of that is. Meditate on that. Really use that more than even the breath as an anchor. And either you will begin to experience a deeper degree of release and peace, or you'll begin to see that it's not as peaceful as it seemed on the surface. It'll be one of those two things. And even that will change. You know, it won't always be one, you know, one of those two. It will be that, and then it will be something else. But in any case, we'll learn. You know, either we'll learn how to deal with really deep states of peace without taking it personally and then corrupting it, or we'll discover that there's some pain there that we hadn't seen before. And it's true, this, is the, this happens to people on the path where they cycle through these periods of time where nothing seems to be happening and life seems to be, the heart seems to be good and clear and calm. And uh, it's very easy to stop practicing for some people in these, in these times because what usually gets us into practice for most people is that life is difficult 
you know, and we want we want more skill to deal with what's difficult. I wasn't making fun here. I just wanted to understand better where you were coming from. Maybe time for one more comment. If somebody else has a comment or a question. You know, there's a whole different idea about suffering that I have, you know, in terms of trying to keep an, trying to keep an open heart despite the suffering around me and trying to keep an open heart in terms of dealing with, like there's a whole big thing now with the University of Minnesota newspaper about the cities, including people from the University of Minnesota to live in North Minneapolis. There's been a lot of articles and letters to the editor, how do you do that in a way that's respectful of someone else's point of view, not be angry about their point of view, accept the fact that there are different points of view, but at the same time express your own point of view. Uh, that's, that's, that's kind of a different kind of a view on, on suffering and suffering in terms of accepting that, that this is part of life. People do suffer, but accepting that does not mean that I, I don't have something to, to do or to offer. Um, that's my practice every day. One of my neighbors, this is what helps me, we have a, periodically we have level three sex offenders that move on, on our block. And I have a neighbor, she has MS, and she's confined to a wheelchair, and so we were all very upset and talking about it. She said, so, she said there's always been funny people in the world. And that kind of puts things in perspective. There's always been people that have been sex offenders in the world, and there always will be people that way. So I accept that, but then what do I do about that in terms of keeping myself straight? How do you welcome a, a, a level three sex offender to your block? Do you invite him to the block club meeting? I mean, these are the kind of issues that I think that really challenge some of the ideas and mm -hmm. principles here in terms of what do you do? And, Keep an open Which is fine, and I think the idea, whatever we focus on, we have, what we want to look at, are we not focusing on that because of some aversion or fear, or are we focusing on this because of some attachment? And see, that's what we want to do is we want to use our life to, to learn. So that's why you may want to focus on that, not because you should, not because that's all there is in life is suffering, but because you might learn something about your mind and heart. And other people who always focus on suffering, they might want to focus, like Mona was suggesting, on gratitude and write down five things they can be grateful to, for every day because their habit is just to see what's wrong in the world. I'm more of that strength, you know, that end, which is probably people pick up in my talks, <laughs> right? Like they kind of like, oh yeah, a lot of dukkha, 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 and dukkha. <laughs> so if if you're if you're responding to that, then you know, the teacher kind of speaks out of his or her personality. So it's good to hear from different teachers for that re for, for that reason and for other reasons. But it's nine o'clock, so we need to. 
let go of the words and just take a few breaths in silence together. Notice the wholesomeness of being here together. And just the quality of safety. The safety in the sense of the wholesomeness of these teachings that we're thinking about, reflecting on, cultivating. And also the wholesomeness of our deeper aspirations to cultivate awareness and compassion wisdom in the world as a way of supporting our life and a way of supporting all beings. So in countless ways, may each of us here and everywhere, may we develop the skill to live with wisdom and compassion, to support ease happiness, and the freedom from suffering for all beings. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.